0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. We'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace.
1: is from Luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And he took him and he healed them and sent him away And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now when he told, now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they were chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: We're in this series called Soul Food, and we've been looking in Luke's gospel at some significant times when Jesus has had a meal with, uh, with a group of individuals. And, and in many cases, and I even shared this a handful of weeks ago, meals are times when we uh, enjoy the best. Some of our, our best memories are around the table when the meal is awesome. It's the best food. It's the best company. Uh, I, I can just share from you by experience, uh, even of our trip, our mission team trip in Rome, Like the meals were great. Like you, I don't think we found a bad plate in all of Rome uh, as a mission team there, which, which maybe seems a little discordant when you go on a mission trip that maybe you should have some bad food, but we couldn't find it, and we tried. Uh, it, it wasn't there. But I wonder if you've ever had a bad meal before. I mean, well, how does that work? When you, you may remember the very, very good meals, but I think something about our memory suppresses or, or seeks to push down those instances where the meal has not been good. And, and it's not just that the food was bad. That can make a meal really, really distasteful. It can be when, when the company is bad, too. When the environment and the situation itself just makes for for a bad meal, it just ruins everything. If the food's bad, no good. If the company's bad, that makes the meal insufferable and all the more horrible, all the more terrible. Uh, I remember one time I was in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a pretty good food town uh, in and of itself and got a lot of great eateries and, and just culture for food. And I was there interviewing with a church, it was about 10 years ago or so, interviewing with a church there for a job. And so the church brought me in. And the leadership there brought me in to uh, just to spend a weekend with me and and to get to know me better and make sure that we were a good fit and discern if uh, if I was the right fit for the church and the church for me and if that was where God was calling our family next. And one of the things you do when you when you get into those environments where you're interviewing for a job and and you're in for a weekend is like they take you around to the best places and so you're going to eat good food more or less uh, in one of those weekends. Well, I'm there and it's Sunday night and the interviews are kind of wrapping up. I've been told to save Monday for some more meetings and conversations, but it's Sunday night and this church had a handful of worship services all throughout the day, so it's like they're wrapping up their 7 p.m. worship service and and we're all just tired and kind of exhausted, but it's finally time to sit down and have dinner together. And and the senior leadership of the church takes me to this this burger place uh, not far from the church and I like a good burger and something and this is going to be great. And I can tell you that for half of that hamburger, cheeseburger, I don't remember, I think it was a cheeseburger. For half of that cheeseburger, it was really good. But about midway through the, the meal, uh, the senior pastor turned to me and he said, You know, Jeremy, like, we think you are a fantastic guy. Like, your character is through the roof. We, we couldn't be more excited about that and, and who you are. Um, but you're a big risk. What? Like, I had never had anybody tell me I'm a risky person to be around. And now the senior leader, and I had half the burger in my mouth hearing him say you're a big risk and oh by the way i don't think this has gone that well and so we don't want to like we don't want to lead you astray or lead you on or have you go back home and think this was a fantastic weekend the job offer is coming and then hear us say to you like sorry no thanks i forget the rest of the burger it was a pit in my stomach to be honest with you the meal was ruined it was horrible it wasn't company that i enjoyed being with anymore i wonder if you can remember those conversations or those meals that maybe you've had, is it possible even for us to be with Jesus and to not enjoy him? And we think about being with Jesus and and this environment where he has meals with people and we think that's going to be a great, enjoyable, pleasant, happy reality. And yet I wonder for many of us, is it possible that we could be with Jesus and find we would not enjoy being with him? This meal here that we're looking at in Luke chapter 14, it's not so much about the meal, but th- this meal is a, is a crash course in terrible meals. Nobody at this meal enjoys it. Maybe you've had one of those holiday meals where you're with your family, and you know there's just some tension in the family, and nobody wants to talk, and it's just kind of awkward the whole time and silence, and people start throwing food, and I don't know if that happens or not, but, but just it's bad. That's the situation here with Jesus and this meal in Luke 14. It's a meal that nobody enjoys. In fact, that's what I've entitled this sermon, How Not to Enjoy a Meal with Jesus. The reason that this meal isn't enjoyable is because there's an essential ingredient in being with Jesus that was missing. And it's, essential, it's an essential ingredient that all of us must have and hold to if we are to enjoy being with Jesus as well. It's an essential ingredient to our lives in walking with Jesus And the element that's missing in this meal and maybe the element that's missing in your life and in mind so that we are kept from enjoying Jesus is the element of humility. No one could enjoy this meal because humility was missing. In fact, that's a great spiritual principle that, that we need to take hold of and understand in our lives, and that is that humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus, if we are truly going to enjoy him, to walk with him, if we're going to fulfill what some have said is the chief end of humanity, to, in, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if we're going to fulfill that reality of enjoying God, then we must possess the heart of humility. Humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. And so I would ask you this morning, do you have that humility? Do you have that humility? Humility? It's essential for us. But in this case, humility wasn't there. Pride was there. Pride, the great enemy of humility. And so I want us to to look at this story and see what what does this pride look like? What does this pride that keeps us from enjoying Jesus look like? And what is this humility that we need? truly look like that would help us to enjoy Jesus. So we're just going to dive in together here, sit down at the table with Jesus and these religious leaders. Luke tells us that one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now the stage is set by Luke for us to understand the issue of the heart that's here. It's pride. Pride is running rampant among these religious leaders. Jesus, presumably it's a Sabbath day, so presumably Jesus had gone to a synagogue nearby and attended that gathering and worshiped and heard the word. Perhaps Jesus was asked to read the scriptures on that Sabbath day and, and be a part of that. And then after that Sabbath synagogue gathering, it was customary in Jesus' culture for there to be big meals afterward. On the Sabbath day, nobody made food or prepared it. So they all prepared these big meals on, Sa- on Friday in readying for the Sabbath. And these meals, these Sabbath day meals, were big displays of economic status, of social hierarchy, of prestige. It was even a display of uh, eliminating those that you didn't want around. The, the Sabbath meal for the Jews in that day was showing off the who's who and the who's not. And it's interesting here that Jesus gets invited. He goes to dine at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. So this isn't just your average ordinary Pharisee, your average ordinary religious person, religious leader there. This is like one of the top religious leaders of Jesus' day. This is one of the guys that had the most clout, the most prestige in all of them. It was a big deal to get invited to this religious leader's house for the Sabbath meal after that synagogue worship service. So Jesus is brought in there. He's invited and welcome into that context. But in finding that meal, he doesn't find a meal that's open and excited and energetic about enjoying him. He finds a meal that's filled with pride looking to tear him down. You see, it's at this point that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had sought to kill Jesus. He had been bucking their norms and running against the current of their man-made laws and their strict, stupid little rules time and time again, and they were frustrated with him for that. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were tired of Jesus walking in the ways of the Scripture but rebelling against their man-made strictures and legalism. And so they have finally determined that they are going to bring Jesus down. They're going to destroy him. So a trap is set. They invite him into this on the Sabbath day into the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And there Luke says they were watching him carefully. Now here's where their pride begins to show itself out in their lives. Let me, let me just show you some, some analysis of what pride really looks like. First of all, it begins with skepticism. Pride begins with skepticisms. Luke just says, they were watching him carefully. They had their eyes on him. They were examining everything he did. They were listening carefully to everything he said, not with openness and willingness to receive and to be surprised and delighted by Jesus. No, they were looking to critique, to display or to destroy and to to bring down Jesus. This, this phrase, watching him carefully, is used six times in the New Testament. Luke uses it four of those six times in his gospel here in Luke and then once in Acts. And Luke always has the sense of it, of, of their watching being with insincerity. They're watching in order to accuse or to trap or to kill. So the meal started off already on the wrong foot. They've brought in Jesus with skepticism, their pride is there. And it's not just a, like, we don't know, we don't understand, kind of a faith seeking understanding. We want to be open about this. They are looking to attack. They're dead set against him. They're hoping he would break one of their rules so that they could condemn him. Let me just ask you and stop here for just a moment because skepticism is often where pride starts. Do you have that kind of skepticism towards Christ? Do you you think about who he is and and what he's called us to? Do you think about Jesus and and his ways? And do you you have a lot of hesitation in holding him at arm's length and looking for ways in which Jesus, in your mind, is going to let you down and fail you so that you can write him off completely? When you hear the Bible, are you you looking for and, and maybe asking the question that Satan asked, did God really say that? Hoping that you can dismiss him hoping that you can write him off, hoping you say Jesus has no place in your life because he doesn't go the way you go. He doesn't think the way you think. So many times Christians today are confronted with a Jesus that that doesn't look like the Jesus they imagined. Even in our context, we have this idea that, that Jesus should think these certain ways, vote this certain way, believe this certain thing, do this certain aspect, and yet when we find in Scripture Jesus loving the poor, caring for those who are marginalized, going against what we would consider the conservative way, with skepticism we write off Jesus instead of being shaped by Jesus. And we're filled with pride. Is that skepticism there in your heart? Remember, the devil's first and constant word in the Bible is, did God really say? You won't enjoy Jesus when you're constantly looking to disprove him or deconstruct him or to show that you know better than Jesus. That's where pride shows itself up. And that's where these religious leaders are. Now, again, I want to make the point very clear. These religious leaders, they're not cuckoo for cocoa puffs about the Bible. They know the Bible well. They are the legal experts of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible jesus's bible they know it word for word they have memorized it they have internalized it if if you were to ask them you know give me Nahum 3 5 they would have it on the on their lips right away they were the bible people of jesus's day so they're not foreign to us but their pride and their skepticism is huge it's massive concerning jesus and who he is is that you Not only is skepticism a way of pride, but stubbornness is also a means of pride. Stubbornness is not a virtue anywhere. I don't care what somebody tells you, and I will be stubborn about that statement. It's not a virtue. They're having this meal, and it's awkward already. Like Luke dramatically brings a surprise in the room. They're examining Jesus. Can you imagine how tense it would be if Jesus walks into that meal, sits down at the table, and he notices, like, they're all watching me and looking for me to fail. I got, I've really got to cross my T's and dot my I's perfectly. But he's Jesus. he he's going to do that. They're having this meal, and Luke dramatically introduces a, 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 a conflict. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, in the midst of their company is a person who has this, this dropsy that Luke describes as a swelling and retention of water in the arms or in the legs. It's a medical condition, edema. Um, and, and that medical condition... It may also be affecting a person's lungs. Uh, it may reveal itself with a cough. Uh, all of this swelling in the arms and the legs and the joints, it could be a symptom of kidney failure or even heart failure at the worst. It's a critical situation. So Luke says there's this individual in the midst of the room with them, at the table with them, who has this deeply significant critical medical need right in front of them. Some scholars speculate that this person was a plant at the meal. Like Here we've got the religious leaders, like the the top Bible scholars of Jesus' day, and they are just frustrated with Jesus that every time the Sabbath comes along, he breaks one of their man-made rules. He heals, he loves, he provides, he cares, he teaches, and they're just like, why won't Jesus play our game? And so some scholars admit that maybe one of them crafted a plan we're going to watch him carefully. We're going to bring the sick guy into the midst of the room. And when Jesus gets ready to heal him, aha, we'll have him. We'll trap him. He'll be done. So maybe this sick guy was there. Like, Can you imagine just the, the lack of dignity that they were giving to that individual? Hey, buddy, come join us for your meal. We know you're really sick, but you'll have a great time. It'll be excellent. They bring him in. He's there. And Jesus sees him. Maybe the Pharisees had him sitting right next to Jesus at the table. Like, Jesus can't ignore this individual. He can't miss his need. And Jesus turns. He turns to the Pharisees. He asks a question. He puts the ball in their court. Jesus responded to the Pharisees and the lawyers, and he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It's really not a question. Is it okay? Is it good to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Well, what was the purpose of the Sabbath? God gave the Sabbath so that humanity would find rest, so that they would be restored, and that they would experience renewal. What did this man who was sick need? Rest, physical restoration, and renewal. That's what the Sabbath was for. And so Jesus is asking, hey, is is it lawful? Is it right? Is it... Maybe the better way to say it was Jesus asking, is it biblical for me to heal this guy? Is it, is it fitting with the Sabbath to give this man rest and renewal and restoration today? Well, the Pharisees, their, their answer would have been absolutely not. Like their strict, dumb rule was you do nothing except what we want you to do. No healing, no kindness, no compassion. Stop it. And Jesus raises the question and they remain silent. They were stuck in their stubbornness. They were holding on tightly to their man-made rules, holding hostage the healing of this helpless man. Their their stubbornness would not release itself. They knew the Bible. They knew the Scripture had no prohibition against healing on the Sabbath. That The Sabbath was actually made for this kind of thing. They knew that the Scriptures would affirm it, and yet they would rather retain their legalistic pride and their man-made rules then agree with God and show compassion to a suffering individual. So they remain silent, stubborn in their pride, refusing to humble themselves. And that's the way that pride shows itself up. Do you have this kind of stubbornness? That you would rather retain your way, your thinking, your patterns of life, even when Scripture says to you, my friend, you're wrong? When the Holy Spirit takes God's word and shines a spotlight on your heart and says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't have this thing right. You're you're not walking in the ways of Jesus. You go, nah, I don't care about Jesus' way. I'm gonna do it my way. Think about the tragedy that this meal is becoming. Imagine we're having a church family feast together. So we're gonna go down after the service and we're gonna have a big spread and a banquet downstairs just as a church family. We're really gonna enjoy it together. And imagine someone comes in who is very desperately sick among us. I mean, they are just... They're in critical condition within days even of losing their life. And and they come in and and maybe some of you, you notice them and you you start to talk with them and you hear their sickness and you, you say, hey, you know what, can we pray for you? And so maybe a small group of people, three or four or five, get around them and they lay their hands on that individual and they pray for them. And God moves and works miraculously and heals that individual right in the midst of our fellowship hall, our kids area downstairs in the midst of this family feast. What would happen next? I'm pretty convinced I don't know of any champagne bottles in our building, but if God did that, we would find them, we would pop the corks, and we would celebrate. We would rejoice. The family feast would turn into a great praise party because of the power and grace of God revealed among us. Look at the opportunity that these Pharisees are missing Jesus is inviting them to see his power and greatness and his love and compassion and for them to join in it. And yet their stubbornness of heart, their pride, keeps them from wanting to experience it. They're going to miss the whole deal. Jesus answered his silence with his power and grace and healed the man. He took him and healed him and sent him away. Jesus is full of mercy and compassion and love. But friends, pride kills the party. Are you that stubborn? Are you that dead set against God's ways if it isn't matching your way? So there's skepticism and there's stubbornness and then there's self-preservation. The self-preservation shows itself up in hypocrisy. I needed three words that started with S, so that's why I said self-preservation here instead of hypocrisy, but it's the same thing. These guys are trying to protect what's theirs, protect the world that they've built Jesus points points it out directly, their hypocrisy in verse 5. He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Again, not a question, just a statement. He's like, You're hypocrites. If your son falls into a well on a Sabbath day, nobody's going to stand there over you and condemn you if you don't pull him out. In fact, they're going to be mad. You're going to go and pull them out. It'd be foolish for you not to. You will do this. These guys wanted the rules to apply to everybody else, but they weren't going to follow them themselves. If it affects them closely, great. But if it doesn't, they were strict and dogmatic and compassionless in applying their man-made rules to others. Jesus, he does ask a question, but verse 6, they could not reply to these things because they were hypocrites. Their pride was so great, they weren't even going to give Jesus an inch. There was no humility to say, you know what? You're right, and we're wrong. and We need to repent and change how we see things. Does that, is that kind of stubbornness and self-reliance, that self-preserving hypocrisy, exist in your own life? Parents, can I just address an area of pride, potentially, that exists in our lives? I, I, I'm concerned that that we may be pushing our children away from loving and walking with Jesus because what our children might see in us is hypocrisy. They may see within us this kind of self-preserving hypocrisy that says, here's the rules, here's how you're to do it, here's the strict things that we have for you, and yet we as parents aren't showing and living that and loving them and showing the grace of God before them. Our, Our children may see us pretending in one place here in church on Sundays, looking the part in one way, in public, in front of others, but what they see in our homes and the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat others outside our homes, even in the way we treat them, they, they may just see hypocrisy. And it's because of our pride. And so instead of commending by our lives Jesus to our children, what they see is two different worlds, two different lives, And they're ready to turn away from Jesus. They look at one parent or both and say, if that's how it's going to be lived, I don't want anything to do with Christ. Skepticism, stubbornness, and self preserving hypocrisy are all forms and elements of pride. And again, I would ask us, does this pride exist in our own lives? James says, Jesus gives more grace. The scripture says, God opposes the proud. Listen to that warning carefully. God opposes the proud. He won't be in your corner with your pride, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's the second thing that we see here is that humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. That is the essential ingredient for us to enjoy him. If we are to live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then what do we need? We need humility. What if we were truly humble people? How would we experience life? How would we experience Christ? So Jesus turns it now and he presses home his own observations of what's going on. Remember in verse 1, they're all watching carefully to see him. And Jesus, we find in verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Jesus has been watching as well. And he has something to say to them and he has something to say to you and me this morning about our own pride. He gives a parable here. He says, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, so imagine a wedding happens and you get invited to the wedding and then to the reception. He says, Don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Imagine going to that. I went to a wedding last night. It was great. It was fantastic. And the wedding reception afterward was fantastic. It was an excellent meal, one I will remember for sure. But, but what, how awkward would it be if I'm invited there and I didn't really have a part in the wedding ceremony at all. It was just a friend that we were celebrating and being a part of there with. How awkward would it be if I go into the wedding banquet hall and I get in there and I'm like, you know what? I really deserve to sit next to the groom. You know, there's the head table, and I know there's some name tags up there, but I, I really deserve to sit next to him. Like, wouldn't that be great? So I like, I rush in there. I park my chair right up next to the groom. Hey, Steph, go sit by the bride. You know, that's, that's where we do. We deserve to be up here. Isn't this great? It would be so awkward, so embarrassing. Like, the father of the bride comes up and is like, guys, get out of here. Like, we got a table for you in the back over in the corner. You might want to just leave instead. Get out of here. That's that's Jesus' point here, right? When we elevate ourselves, when we try and put ourselves in the highest places, we try and give ourselves dignity, what we're actually doing is we're diminishing ourselves. We're thinking far highly of ourselves than we ought. And this posturing, this was actually the way it worked in these meals in Jesus' day. They'd walk into the room, and whoever sat closest to the host, they felt like they were the most important. They had the places of honor. So there's all this kind of jockeying around, moving the chairs. Who's going to sit here? He's like, just, Jesus says, just start at the bottom. Because then the only place you can go is up. The host will honor you. And this is an honor-shame culture, so they're going to either start with honor or they're going to start with shame. Jesus says to them in verse 10, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, this isn't, isn't just good common sense advice for living well in the world. This is a display of how humility works. We want dignity, and our pride diminishes us. And Jesus says, if you take the route of humility, all you can be is dignified. Start at the bottom. Let others elevate you. When we inflate ourselves, we end up diminishing ourselves. Paul said it this way in Romans 12, 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Or Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from pride, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest but also to the interest of others. And Jesus, here in verse 11, he lays out a universal spiritual principle of spiritual maturity. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you seek to climb the ladder of your own prominence and prestige, you will be knocked down. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To enjoy Jesus, to glorify him, we must start and exist and live as humble people. J.C. Ryle, an English pastor in the 19th century, he said, Humility may well be called the queen of the Christian graces. To know our own sinfulness and weakness and to feel our need for Christ is the very beginning of saving religion, to start low. So what about you? Are you filled with pride? Pride? You think more of yourself than you ought? Are you able to enjoy Jesus' presence with humility? You see, the good news is that Jesus has won this kind of humility for us. It is the essential ingredient for us to enjoy him, but it's the ingredient that he supplies. Because not a one of us comes into this life with humility. We're all proud people. We all think much of ourselves. And so we have to come to Jesus who gives and supplies humility for us. And he's done this by his work on the cross. Jesus, being the chief and highest person in all the universe, humbled himself for us. Paul writes, he says, that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus lowered himself. He humbled himself. He came to us. So that we can enjoy friendship and honor with him forever. Jesus provides the essential ingredient to enjoy him forever. He provides himself and his humility. His humility given through his coming and being a servant to us. His humility expressed in what we remember today, Palm Sunday, as he entered the city of Jerusalem. Not on a victor's steed, wearing a crown and elevating himself above everyone else. But coming humbly on a donkey with a small throng of worshipers saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus came in humility and he died on a torture device that was designed to bring maximum shame and dishonor. Jesus was humiliated so that everyone who comes to him, the humble king, would receive and be given dignity and honor and glory as a son or daughter of God. Do you possess this essential ingredient to enjoy Jesus, humility? Have you humbled yourself? Can you humble yourself again and repent of your sin and your pride and lower yourself before God and before others? Jesus invites us to enjoy a meal with him forever, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And and he says, come to you, everyone, come. But to come to him, we have to be humble. And to enjoy him, we have to be humble. And he gives himself to us forever so that we will be and experience humility and we will enjoy him forever. So friends, let's lay down our pride. Let's pick up humility towards God and towards one another and enjoy every day and every meal with Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God
1: is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.